0: Thanks for tuning in to Women's Voices. I'm Genevieve Gluck, and in this episode, I spoke with Helen Joyce, a journalist for The Economist, who holds a PhD in mathematics from University College London, about her recently published book titled Trans When Ideology Meets Reality, which debuted at number seven on the Sunday Times hardback nonfiction list and appeared in the Times list of the best books of 2021. Regular Times columnist David Aronovich wrote that, quote, Joyce examines a new ideology about gender. This holds that biological sex is as much a social construct as the idea of gender is. One benefit of Joyce's book is its intellectual clarity and its refusal to compromise, end quote. Kathleen Stock, professor of philosophy at the University of Sussex and author of Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism, gave Trans a five-star review at The Telegraph, calling it a superlative, critical analysis of trans activism and observing that, quote, Joyce shows an impressive capacity to handle complex statistics, legal statutes, and other bits of evidence without losing clarity or narrative drive, end quote. Writing for The Standard, Stella O'Malley said, quote, Joyce's book truly is a tour de force. With a fine eye for detail, she brings all the elements of gender ideology together with clarity and precision. For anybody who wishes to gain a deep understanding of the issues related to trans activism, this book is simply a must-read, quote. On July 7th, nearly two weeks after publication, Joyce published a rebuttal, to what she described as a smear campaign against her taking place on social media, and responded specifically to allegations of anti-Semitism directed at her scrutiny of the significant financial support provided to the transgender movement. Quote, I was also subjected to a smear campaign. I knew I would be, because that's what happens to anyone who publicly dissents from gender identity ideology. The notion that what makes you a man or woman isn't your immutable biology— but what you declare yourself to be. Those who want to silence me are clearly unable to counter my arguments, and so instead they attack me. The lie they have seemed to settled on is that I am supposedly anti-Semitic. I didn't deliberately select three Jewish donors. It never occurred to me to think about their religions. Two of the three, it turns out, are indeed Jewish, though that is not something I mention in my book because it is utterly irrelevant, end quote. Having predicted this sort of slander, Joyce explains in the introduction to her book, quote, This is a book about trans activism. It is a story of policy and institutional capture, of charitable foundations controlled by billionaires joining forces with activist groups to pump money into lobbying behind the scenes for legal change. They have won over big political parties, notably America's Democrats, and big businesses, including tech giants. They are backed too by academics in gender studies, queer theory, and allied fields, and by the pharmaceutical industries, which have woken up to the fortunes to be made from gender-affirmative medicine. I know that I will be called unkind and worse for writing this book. My intention is not to be unkind to trans people, but to prevent greater unkindness," end quote. Hi, Helen, nice to be talking with you today. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. And it's
1: nice to talk to you too.
0: Uh, So to begin with, I'm curious, what prompted you to write this book? And what are some of the main topics that you've addressed?
1: So I was completely unaware of any of this uh, topic. And by this topic, I mean the replacement of biological sex with self-declared gender identity and law and culture. Um, Until about 2017, when somebody just mentioned it to me, uh, uh, someone who, a commissioning editor mentioned it to me. And at first I tried to find somebody else to write about it, um, and that failed. That article just didn't work at all because the person I commissioned had been taught a lot of the stuff that I was blissfully unaware of, and the resulting article just didn't make any sense. Um, It sort of, you know, it talked about man and woman and male and female as categories that were entirely socially constructed, and you didn't even mention reproduction or evolution or um, just basically the material reality of bodies. Like it was, it was an article that started from the given position that these things entirely discursively constructed. And I hadn't had any idea up till then that anyone even thought this stuff. So that intrigued me and I started to look into it myself and I was absolutely astonished to discover what I had missed by first being in my fifties and secondly, having gone and studied mathematics at university rather than a liberal art or a social science. It was, I mean, I was completely unaware that there was anyone in the world who didn't know what the categories of male and female meant and that they meant the same in humans as they mean in every mammal, that um, you know that they are evolved categories, that for mammals they can't change, that these things are significant for you know the, body, the the embodied reality of our lives. And then I discovered to my horror that lots of people didn't think this or at least claimed not to think it, and that the alternative view that these things are discursively constructed, that they are um, chosen categories and declared categories, uh, was getting enshrined in law and that's very much to women's detriment because um, partly because uh, this world was designed by men for men so you know as women we move in it in uh, a space that has not been constructed for us but also because women have certain vulnerabilities that do need to be taken into account if women are to have justice and equality so women do most of the reproductive labour and women are physically weaker and much more vulnerable to a particular sex crimes than men are. So if you don't, if you pretend that bodies aren't real and you pretend that the categories are things that people can opt into at will, that makes you blind to the fact that there are female people making up half of the human race and those female people need specific rules and accommodations if they're to live as equal human beings. So a lot of the book is about that. Um, The book is meant to be the book that I would have liked to read three years ago. They always say, write the book that you would like to read. So three years ago, when I first went, what the hell? How did I get, you know, a few thousand words from somebody about the idea of people transitioning from being men to being women and vice versa? That doesn't mention biological sex and what it is. I would have liked to be able to pick this book up then and find out why that happened, how it happened and what the consequences are. And I divide those consequences in my mind into three, and they are the consequences for women, for children and for gay people. Because they're the groups that it's most important for us to recognize that the sexes are real categories, distinct and immutable. Women, I've explained, um, children because they're developing, um, and they, we teach them the ideas about our world, our bodies, um, our society, and if we teach them that what makes you a man or a woman is what you declare yourself to be, then we're teaching them stereotypes and we're confusing them about their bodies and we are not doing child safeguarding properly either. And for gay people, of course, um, biological sex is the substrate that you need to understand and accept before you can say whether someone is same-sex or opposite-sex attracted or indeed bisexual. So if you think that man and woman are opt-in categories, you've basically said that a lesbian is a, a A female-identified person who finds female-identified people attractive, that's a person of either sex who finds people of either sex attractive. You've just demolished any idea of sexual attraction as an embodied reality and that matters more for gay people than it does for straight people and it matters more for female gay people than for male gay people because it's female gay people whose sexual boundaries are under threat and pressure from male people who'd like to sleep with them. That was a long answer but I hope it gave you what you wanted.
0: Well, I mean, it really points out the fact that there are so many facets of this and there are so many uh, repercussions of pretending that biological sex doesn't exist. Um, It touches on so many different parts of society, as you've pointed out, you know, sports, but also homosexual rights, women's rights and so on. And I feel that for each person, there's usually a jumping off point of some, one of these issues that really struck a chord with a person that makes them kind of go down the rabbit hole as it were. For me, it was the medical, um, what I see as the medical uh, abuse of children. And from there uh, just kind of snowballed. So I'm curious, what was the first issue for you that you thought, oh, what's going on here?
1: Well, because I came in as a journalist and not as, for example, the parent of a trans-identified child or a lesbian who had discovered that it's not possible anymore to have female-only lesbian spaces. Uh, I came in really because of the idea. I was asked to write an article. And I, before I was an academic, sorry, before I was a journalist, I was an academic and it was mathematics I studied. So um, I immediately recognized a circular definition when I saw one. So a circular definition is one that gives you no information about whatever the thing that that is being defined is because it uses the definition of the thing or the word for the thing in the definition. So trans women are women is the same as saying a woman is someone who identifies as a woman. It tells you absolutely nothing about what a woman is. So I noticed that straight away. And if you have a circular definition, you can prove anything because you have no basis. You're talking about a thing that you haven't in any way constrained. So I was sort of well primed to recognize this definition as something that would be legally extremely, extremely problematic. And if you put into law that a woman is anyone who says they're a woman, then the category of woman is, is a it's just a you know, an unfilled-in slot like you know that you can put anything into. Straight away it's just any person. And if you're trying to say things about women in law, but you haven't defined what a woman is, you're you're not actually saying anything. And in fact, worse than that you're not saying anything while you are pretending you are saying something. So you can say something like, um, you know, this space is a women-only space, but if you haven't said what well, women are, it's not. It's an anybody space. However, it's going to be tra- treated as if it's a female-only space, because some people will still think that's what you mean. So it'll be acceptable to be naked in that space, for example, if it's a changing room, but actually anyone can come into it. So it's a space where men can you know, expose themselves with total legal impunity. And that's just one example. So that's, that's my rather esoteric starting point. I, I recognize that for most people, it's you know, children's rights or gay rights or something like that, you know, women's rights. But for me, it was this circular definition that brought me in. And then I realized you know, how far, as you say, the repercussions ripple outwards when you um, destroy a really key term like woman, or indeed like man, but woman is generally, you know, generally we assume that humans are male and we write the laws like that. and Then when we realize that doesn't work for women, we write a specific rule of law for women. So it's women, as I say, who are affected more. Uh, And then the reason I decided to actually write the book, as opposed to just rail about this on Twitter and think about it all the time and read lots, was discovering to my horror that the people who believe this, that what makes you a man or a woman is what you say you are, what you feel like inside, what you say you feel like inside. Those people took that belief so far that they thought that we will have something that you could call a gender identity and that gender identity is something like a sexed soul and that's a sex soul that you're born with and therefore children can be trans. So children can just be born basically wrong in some sense, born looking like they're male but actually in some metaphysical sense really female. And if you think that then of course you're going to give that child treatment that p- makes them right, that puts them where they were meant to be and all of this makes no sense whatsoever if you don't believe in the starting position, that it's possible to be born in the wrong body or possible for somebody who's obviously physically male to be in some real sense female. Mm. But if you believe those things, then you put children on a um, treatment pathway that leads to quite significant body modifications and um, that have lifelong consequences, including sometimes sterility. And that have been done in much larger numbers, starting Late 1990s, a few kids picking up pace from 2007, especially in the US, and now it's become medical dogma. And quite unsurprisingly, we're now seeing people in their 20s who went through this in their teens and have come out the other side and gone, that makes no sense to me anymore. I don't know why when I was 14 or 15, I thought I was really meant to be a boy, but I did. I've cut off my breasts, in some cases, taken testosterone, in some cases, had their reproductive organs removed. And I wish I hadn't. Um, I now think I'm just a lesbian or I've got over my depression or my eating disorder, which are the things that confused me in this way. And I met some people like this. And that was the moment that I realised that this was not just a very worrying development for the rights of half have- of adult humanity. But it was actually a grotesque uh, human rights abuse masquerading as medical treatment. And that was when I decided I had to write the book.
0: Let's go back a little bit, a few decades, to kind of the origins of this ideology. You know, some people kind of place it around the 90s and Judith Butler, but uh, as you have written, uh, kind of tracing the role of sexology in this gender identity theory Let's talk about John Money for a second because I think a lot of people who are maybe just entering into this debate don't really know a little bit about the history or who was John Money or any of those other sexologists who were involved.
1: So I try to cover some of the history indeed in the book but um, I mean there's a whole book to be written there many books maybe and parts of this have been written in other books but quite often by people who take a radically different view of what these people did. Roughly speaking, I would say, um, the idea that you are really a member of the opposite sex is an idea that does arise from time to time in rare individuals around the place and throughout history. Um, I spend some time in the book talking about why that might be, like why a particular person might come to that belief. I think it's very different for male people and for female people. And I think it also depends quite largely on the culture that you're in. And in particular, what you think that belief means depends very largely on the culture you're in. So there are cultures where um, people who feel strongly that they are much more like women than men are treated as a third gender. People hear about the Fafafine of Samoa, for example, who are little boys who show notably what you might call a feminist tendencies and grow up to be treated as a third gender. They're still seen as male, but they're not understood to be men. So this idea arises in different numbers, depending on your culture. It's understood by people in different ways, depending on their culture. And in the early 20th century, it was understood by a few European sexologists to be something that is similar to being a homosexual, because at the time they believed that being a homosexual man or a woman was having an opposite sex soul. I mean that was really the way that they described it and they called these people psychic hermaphrodites. So a gay man had a woman's brain or soul or mind in a man's body and then they became aware that there were people who rather than it all being centered around their sexual attraction it centered around their image of, what, of the person they were meant to be and they thought of this as a different sort of psychic hermaphrodite. And with the gay men for some reason they didn't really think that those men should be castrated and turned into women but with the people like, which is kind of what you might think they'd think given the way that they were conceptualizing this, but they didn't. Um, But with these people who said that they felt that inside they had a person of the opposite sex, that is what they thought would be the suitable treatment. And the first person probably who had a pretty complete treatment along these lines uh, is in the film, The Danish Girl, which was in 2015, which is a reasonably accurate description of the story of Lily Elba in the 1920s. um, I can't, it was 1930 or so that this male person, this Danish artist, uh, became castrated and um, had a sort of, some sort of neo-vaginal cavity created um, which ended up killing him because they didn't know enough about things like blood transfusion and so on at the time, um, and that's what the film is about. So if you fast forward, you go through repeated iterations of sexologists who will meet people who are highly unusual in one of two ways. One, they feel sexual attraction towards their own sex rather than the opposite sex, or much more rarely, they feel that they were really meant to be members of the opposite sex. And if you start from the position that your sex determines your social role, or indeed that the social role is the most important thing and the sex is secondary, that informs how these people. Now, I don't believe either of those things. I believe that male and female are just bedrock physical reality that you know because we are mammals because we are evolved creatures I think that they have significant consequences for our embodied reality and our lives and our existence I think a whole load of extra significant realities are put on top of us by the culture that we live in and I fight against those extra impositions I you know I regard them as often sexist and certainly restrictive, but if you think those things are good because you're a social conservative or because you think that women really are inferior and really were put on the earth to serve men, then when you meet one of these people, you may think to yourself, oh, I'll change their body, I'll fit them back into the other box. And there were a series of sexologists who thought like this, and John Money was one of them, but um, John Money in particular treated children and children who had intersex conditions. So, I mean, in a way, this is a side it's, it's a big side detour in the book. I just felt I had to do it because um, people hear about it and they hear, um, you know, that there were these people who, uh, you know, like these. They, they hear that there's, um, in, there are people who are intersex and that this proves that sex is a spectrum, and this, in some unspecified and ridiculous way, shows that when people say when a man says he's a woman, he's really a woman. You know, so I felt I had to tell that story. But I mean, actually, in one way, it's a complete sideshow. For the story of transgender ideology. But, I mean, anyway, I'll tell you briefly the story of John Money. So he was at um, Johns Hopkins University. He felt that um, you could fit into either sex role, um, boy or girl, if you were put there in your first two years of life, that you could bring up any little male child to be a girl or any little female child to be a boy if you did it early enough and if you were absolutely unwavering in doing that. Um, of course, by sex roles he meant like really, really retrograde things, um, and then that tr- that it affected how he treated little infants who had either got ambiguous genitalia or had had a severe injury to their genitals. So, for example, he would castrate little boys and tell the parents to bring those little boys up as if they were little girls. Turns out that um, you know, that isn't what sex is. <laughs> it isn't what your parents tell you what you are before you were two, it's much more fundamental than that, and he's now regarded as really someone who did monstrous things to children with medical conditions but he joined forces with these sexologists who had an understanding of what people meant when they said that they were really meant to be the opposite sex and those two understandings collided in the 1960s and 70s and produced a treatment pathway for trans identified people which was change the body to fit the mind that's how they described it if you can't change the mind to fit the body, then change the body to fit the mind. Personally, I don't see any reason to change either of them. I think it's a false dichotomy. But that's that's you know sorry longer than you wanted again. I'm sure, but anyway, that's the sort of back, backdrop when you arrive in the 1990s to queer theory. You already have this 50-year history, longer of understanding people who say things about themselves and their real psychological sex as being something that me- requires the body to be fixed.
0: Right. The reason I brought up John Money, as I said, is many people are not that familiar with uh, kind of the, say, surgical experimentation that was going on well before this became a mainstream sort of popular Uh, fashionable, even ideology. And so for a lot of people, they might feel as though it's sort of come out of nowhere. But in fact, as you've mentioned, it it hasn't, there's a history of it as well. I actually just bought John Money's book, Sexual Signatures, which is a bit difficult to find. And in it, he kind of has this idea of like showing pornography to children and how in order to help them understand what he calls their gender schema or their gender identity. And so this is
1: extraordinary.
0: mm, And people don't know this, you know, this was In the public consciousness around 2000, there was a book, a national bestseller by a Canadian journalist that brought this to light. But within 20 years, again, we've already forgotten about it, or it's been kind of erased that...
1: Isn't that interesting? I've noticed that several times. Um, I think we erase everything unless somebody makes a really, really concerted effort to make us remember it. Mm. I think this, whenever I see something about the Holocaust, that if... You know, Jewish people in the state of Israel had not made this decision that they were going to insist we remembered it. I think we'd have forgotten it by now. I really do. And, and you know, I, and I think it's almost the only example of, you know, a, a truly horrific a historical event that we've somehow managed to remember for almost a century now, I know, I mean, 80 years, say. And it's because an entire nation of people are determined to stop the world from forgetting it. And unless you have people making that sort of effort, everything just becomes erased. Like people forget about the killing fields, they forget about you know the, the slaughter of Mao, they forget about Stalin. They, you know, we're, we're busily forgetting about Rwanda now, just to stick with you know mass slaughters of peoples. So then, when you come to something that's obviously not at the same level, like an ideology that causes a horrendous um, um, you know miscarriage of justice or human rights abuse on a group, I think twenty years we've forgotten all about it.
0: Well, I think there's also been sort of an effort to uh, enable that kind of erasure because the terminology, you know, it keeps shifting. And as I'm sure you must be aware, but the DSM for prescribing um, certain mental medical conditions, anyway, the language around gender identity has been shifting with each new publication of that book. And as well, the drugs that we call puberty blockers in fact, were not designed for this purpose. So it seems as though there's been an intentional changing of the language to sort of soothe this um, forgetting. I
1: see that change of language, and I see that it has that consequence. I'm not sure that's precisely why it happens, though. Mm. I mean, it's probably partly why it happens. I see all of this as an extraordinarily linguistically driven movement. So, I mean, that's the postmodernist turn, that. Discourse creates reality rather than describing reality. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of important insight in that We're social animals and we are um, You know quite intellectual compared to other animals. So we we have many realities that aren't just the physical reality of the world We live in we create them and we create them partly by discourse But the postmodernist turn seems to me to reach a point where it seems to have forgotten that there's a bedrock that we are actually mammals that we are born we die you know we have a strong kinship with most other living creatures through through our genetics um and and sees us solely as discursive creatures and when you abandon reality in your thinking and you just think about the, the you know the, the utopia that you'd like to create you create that utopia through words so you know you say that a man is a woman and now he is a woman he just is and you forget you know that you're not even saying anymore oh he's a different type of woman or she's a different type of woman You're not even saying, oh, there's two types of women, there's cis women and there's trans women. Or, you know, there's two types of women, there's male women and there's female women. Or this woman was born a woman and this woman declared themselves to be a woman. You've forgotten all of that and now you just say they're women. So these things happen iteratively because you get more and more purist in your language demands. But in the end, you end up in a world where the language is all, everything. And then you've detached yourself entirely from reality. Um, and yes, it's a it's a it's a movement that steals and borrows, and you know, it's a magpie movement that grabs phraseology like sex assigned at birth or gender assigned at birth or um, intersex or any of these things, you know, in its service. But I I see that as more just an opportunist consequence of this linguistic um, focus.
0: So speaking of the role of uh, postmodernism and language and all of this, what, what do you see as the role of academia in promoting gender ideology?
1: I mean, central, but specifically American academia. Um, I think that these ideas um, about these, what we might call the dentitarian ideas, um, not just identity driven, because we all have many identities that are salient. Now, all politics is to some extent identity politics, that's always true. You know, whether you're in the aristocracy or you're a member of the, the working classes or whatever you are, you have identities that matter that are salient in the world and salient in politics. So by identitarianism, I mean something much more like describing yourself and your categories in a highly precise and specific manner and seeing yourself as basically exactly those identities and every person who shares those identities as you know, basically the same thing. So some people say, you know, like as a cis straight white male or something like that. And straight away, we're meant to understand what that viewpoint is and what any person who describes themselves in those ways would say. That's a very American ideology. It's a very distinctively American way of thinking and talking and it came out of left wing American academia. It's very salient to the way Americans talk about race, which is highly distinctive and quite different from the way that other countries talk about race. I mean, countries have many different sorts of complicated histories on racial issues. I lived in Brazil for several years and it's the country that by far had the highest number of imported African slaves, but they don't think about race in anything remotely like the same way as Americans do. And I see the way that American academics created this notion of gender identity as being equally distinctive culturally specific but what's happened is that america is so culturally dominant in the world and in particular left-wing america is so culturally dominant in the world like the the america that the rest of the world gets exported to it is hollywood silicon valley american academia you know ideas from sort of quite woke multinationals if i may use that word so they're you know they're new york and california ideas not you know utah and you know Wisconsin ideas, just to pick two random other states. Um, those ideas are again, highly discursive and highly, um, hi- highly individualistic in a specific way. So they're not individualistic in the same way that you know a, a 19th century buccaneering libertarian might be. They're individualistic in the sense that the, the entire focus is inwards. So when they see people as members of groups, they don't see them as members of groups with, with, you know, with differing ideas and differing individuals in them, but some solidarity, like the union movement might. The focus is entirely on self-defining and self-creating of the words that you use about yourself. And so you, you see these extraordinary lists of new genders sometimes now where... I mean, you just, people seem to make up words. Like they're no longer saying, you know, I'm a demiboy or I'm gender fluid or I'm pangender. They're making up words that I can't even parody and then telling you what this new gender is. You know, it's so inward focused and so individualistic in that sense. And yes, this is the idea that we're all meant to sign up to, even though, you know, it's so culturally specific.
0: Do you see any correlation between, say, internet culture and kind of this idea of creating your own identity?
1: Yeah, definitely in several ways. I mean, one is the internet has been absolutely essential to the spread of these ideas. And another is that internet culture is obviously taken up by young people first and foremost. So I once saw, and I wish I could remember who said it, but I once saw somebody describe um, sites like Tumblr as like the island and the Lord of the Flies where children bring each other up. So there are no adults. On sites like tumblr in 2015 it's just children um, and when there are no adults in the room children behave in quite different ways and they they educate each other and they miseducate each other and that was very much what happened on these sites you know they tell each other like unbelievable misinformation so that's uh, that's two ways and then a third way i think is that it takes us away from our embodied reality and children in particular all of us more and more i mean look at you and me talking over a zoom link um all of us have moved away from our physical reality very much since the internet became a thing, but children most. And so children spend their time talking to disembodied people, um, perhaps having several windows open at a time, playing in games where they have avatars and those avatars can be changed at a whim. You can swap in and out things. You can change sex. You can, you know, become a different species, all this sort of thing. You know, All of it is feeding our over-large brains, which are really rather prone without us even feeding it, to thinking that what we really are is some sort of homuncul- homunculus behind the eyes, living in a sort of a you know a meat robot. And this internet culture feeds that and makes it much, much worse. So a lot of young people do just think that what they are is a spark behind the eyes and that the rest is just, uh, Mary Harrington, a British feminist, calls it meat Lego, you know, stuff that you can just swap in and out. And they're too young to have had serious surgery or to been seriously ill, most of them, like, you know, that happens more and more as you get older. And so they don't really realize how horrible and painful it would be to be cutting bits of you off and trying to stitch on other bits and, you know, how your body is actually a balanced organism that, when all is going well, works all in in harmony with itself. And you can't just intervene with puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones as if you were, you know, some robot who ran on a single, you know, limited set of instructions. It's all evolved. So in all these ways, I think the internet was absolutely key to this.
0: That's a really good point. It reminds me of something you had said before. Um, I can't recall you were speaking with someone else about this and you had mentioned something along the lines of the fact that, you know, when you're younger, you tend to feel as though there's not much difference between the sexes, right? So women might, young women might feel, Oh, you know, there's not that much difference at all. And I can do whatever men can do. I can do whatever I like. But then as you sort of get on into like your thirties and forties and so on, the sex differences become more, more apparent, more, uh, Mm -hmm. more of a, more of a challenge, more of a daily challenge or, something that you notice. So uh, again, bringing it back to the youth culture here, I wonder if, do you think that this will start to kind of fizzle with time as this generation sort of grows up into their own bodies or do you think it will be continuously like passed on? What What is your kind of prediction for the future generations regarding this?
1: I mean, nothing ever just gets passed on as is. Um, and I think with a, a movement that's so divorced from reality, which is one of the reasons why it changes and metastasizes so fast, there's nothing anchoring it in reality, you know. And that's why, you know, what people said in 2015 is so incredibly different than what they say in 2020 or 2021. You know, the words are all different, um, you know, the things that you said in 2015 that were regarded as the absolute acme of uh, progressive thought, I know, regarded as seriously transphobic so it's incredibly fast-moving movement and therefore very hard to predict what way it will go. But I suspect it will, a, lot, a lot of different things will happen. I, I mean, I hesitate to say this, but I really sort of can't see any further frontiers or many further frontiers for a movement that's so divorced from reality and that sees us as so disembodied. Like, where, where is there to go? Like, I mean, people talk about transhumanism or they talk about trans you know, people who identify as different species or so on and so forth. I mean, I, I'm literally running out of things to think that you could do that deny your physical reality at this point. So at some point that runs into a wall or runs into the ground. And then there's, of course, just the pendulum swing. Every movement, good or bad, experiences pendulum swings. So, I mean, no 15-year-old thinks a 25-year-old is cool. And no 15-year-old thinks what their teachers tell them is cool either. So once you've institutionalized um, the ideas of gender identity, and once you have got twenty-five-year-olds, all—I think it's probably about twenty-five to thirty-two or so—now really parroting, as if it's you know completely obvious to everybody and bigoted to say anything other than uh, you know a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. I don't think that's massively attractive to a teenager who's looking to uh, push against um, you know authority and received wisdom but what exactly they'll do I really have no idea because you never do have any idea until they do it like I never predicted this would you when you, like in 2000 would you have thought there would ever come a day you know running that we're in the run-up to the Olympics and we're going to see some males competing as women I mean never I'd bet anything that that would never happen
0: it's really shocking yeah I think uh, if anything you know I, I was feminist prior to this um so in a sense you know I never really had a, a moment where I thought you know what's going on. I, I was kind of following this for a while and I never really bought into it. I was sort of laughing about it back in like 2014, but yeah. then I, as my jaw kind of dropped because like I was laughing about this and my friend just kind of stared at me as if I would you know, slapped her across the face or something, but I, I, I kind of froze and thought, oh,
1: Oh, I had a very similar experience. I said to somebody I met through work—not someone who works at The Economist—and um, that my son, um, uh, one of my younger sons, one of my sons, when he was younger, had said, um, "You know, I identify as an attack helicopter," and this is this now apparently seriously transphobic thing to say, because it's meant to be mocking people's stated identities. Like, so, so you're simultaneously meant to believe that people can identify as literally anything, and there is simply no criterion for understanding who someone is, other than what they tell you. And yet to mock this by picking a ridiculous example is seriously transphobic. I mean, these two things cannot coexist, these two ideas. Like either people are who they say they are and you have to take any example straight faced or you're allowed to laugh when you pick a, a ridiculous example. Um, but anyway, I was really surprised. I said, oh, my son told me this joke about you know, identifying as an att- attack helicopter. And this, this boy looked at me, boy I say, young man, looked at me like, oh my God, this woman. Jesus, old people. And it was as if I'd used the N-word, seriously. Wow. But again, I'm not the one who says that people can identify as whatever they want and that we all have to accept it.
0: Around the 2015, around that time of Caitlyn Jenner, there were American comedians getting cancelled over this. Of course, maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with Dave Chappelle, who got mm-hmm. into some trouble over this. And it, it really does strike me I mean, this is a very
1: funny idea
0: it is very
1: funny yeah i don't mean that the individuals who feel psychologically driven to do this are funny not at all people you know people are endlessly varied and different in their beliefs and their needs and i have huge respect for anybody who finds themselves in a difficult position and tries to find a way forward through that difficult position in a way that respects other people's needs and uh, you know their right to see to, to state reality as they wish i mean really like what a hard road to have to walk down we're allowed to laugh when people say very funny things. I've tried this experiment of showing lots of people pictures of someone of the well-known male athletes who competes as a woman you know like Rachel McKinnon as Rachel McKinnon used to call themselves um, and Veronica Ivy on the podium with two other cyclists and it's just this enormous male person who doesn't look very much in condition with two superbly fit women on either side and I have literally never shown this picture to anyone who hasn't burst out laughing because it's the only It's a shock to laugh sometimes, but it's actually just very funny. I can't help it, it just is. And then then it's not funny at all when you realize that we're not allowed to laugh, we're not meant to laugh and we have to accept this and that person now has the gold medal. So none of that's funny, but I'm sorry, that picture is hysterical.
0: Well, and part of laughter is sort of this relief of pressure, right? You feel some kind of stress or tension, and laughter is a relief of that. And it's also kind of signaling to the other people you're with that you're understanding the same thing, yeah,
1: yeah, you' you're expressing your reality. you you' you're brought face to face with something that's just absurd. And the only natural response is a shocked or you know, hysterical laugh. and and then you can start to think and grow angry and you know, be amazed at everybody going along with this and look around you and say, but can't you see the emperor and has no clothes people? Come on, look at what's in front of your eyes. But the first reaction is a laugh. And I think that that's one of the reasons that this movement has become, as in the, um, the trans activist movement has become so vicious, is that we can all see in front of our eyes something that's absurd and ridiculous as well as enraging on occasion and it's absolutely essential to silence us because we're destroying it we're destroying their insistence on remaking the world through words so we must be silenced and the silence has to happen before we even have that instinctive reaction of laughter or in some cases anger it has to get it has to be put inside our heads so that we know to censor ourselves before the laugh even rises
0: mm-hmm. and in in limiting our ability to laugh it, it it limits our ability to see who agrees with us who to form any kind of relationship with other people who might agree with us. I mean, it's very powerful, actually, Mm -hmm, even mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. that simple thing. Yes.
1: Stealing words from people is a very powerful tool.
0: Uh, I mean, there's this thing that a
1: lot of men seem to think. And by the way, I I really acknowledge that lots of the people pushing this are women. But I just want to talk about a dynamic I've seen with men. A lot of men say some begrudging thing like, "Look, you may have a point, but and the but is often you're saying it in a mean way. And there's, a, I think it was um, Victoria Smith, another British feminist, she said that, uh, you know, I think it was her, she certainly has said this, I don't know if it was her who said it first, but she said, you know, there's no way they'll allow us to say it. It's always, you know, if only those nasty feminists hadn't said it in their nasty feminist way, then we would have understood it earlier. Then we would have agreed to them, but they're so angry and they won't be polite and they won't be kind. And they insist on calling male people male, which is a bit mean. Can they not find a different way to say it? There's no way, if we said it a different way, they'd be angry about that too. So it's just, you know, when there's literally no way that in words you can say what you're trying to say, they feel like they're going to win the argument, you know? And I think that that's a broader trend in politics at the moment. Um, And I see it with attempts to police people's language about race as well. The thing is there are grotesquely offensive things that people can say about race. And then it shades into just, you know, what some people call microaggressions that are really just people saying things like, where are you from? Because they thought that maybe you were a foreigner, you know? And if you, if you call all of these things racism and you tell people that they can say none of them, well, you don't change people's minds. But maybe you think, that you, like if you, if you think that language makes reality, you think you do change people's minds because you think that if the words aren't, aren't out there, then nobody can think these things. Actually, what happens is they think these things silently and they get angry. Hmm. And I do feel that that's really a part of why Donald Trump was elected, that a lot of people who felt, in some cases, very wrongly, That they were being stopped from saying reasonable things and in other cases quite reasonably they felt that they were being stopped from saying reasonable things but just in general they felt they were stopped from speaking that they were stopped from saying a really large bunch of things that are about how they see the world that's a pressure cooker and it explodes so if we tell the whole world that they're not allowed to just say that's a bloke who's just got that gold medal it's a man standing there with two women on either side holding silver and bronze. If you tell people they can't say that, and then you tell them they can't say male, and then you tell them they can't say trans women, and then you tell them they can't say anything at all, they're not to talk about it at all, and then you say you're not even allowed to laugh, that 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 like automatic laugh that comes up in your throat, you can't do that either. You're bloody hell, where do you expect this is going to go? It's not going to go anywhere good for anybody, and
0: certainly not for trans people. I sometimes wonder at the timing of all of this in general, because... We were just sort of having this moment where women were you know organizing even globally there were protests going on um women were using the internet and social media to talk about women's issues and then this comes along and sort of really Be deconstruct everything. yeah and deconstructs our ability to talk about any of those things anymore but also the denying of biological reality at the very same time that we're experiencing climate change i find very strange
1: I do too and I don't feel I'm really qualified to give a definitive answer on this or even a very well thought out answer but I too have wondered about this timing and these connections there does there does seem to be although I can't put my finger on it a connection between the idea that the world is an infinite and infinitely exploitable resource And that we can change really large things about the way the climate works and the way we create energy and so on and that that won't propagate through the whole system and the idea that you can just you know cut one bit of a human off and put a stitch on another bit or that you can tell everybody that they're to ignore the reality in front of their eyes and you know everything that their entire evolved senses tell them about someone and just accept that person these things do seem to be connected and in a sort of a way in which we have privileged ideas and discourse over the reality of our physical bodies and the world around us. And then on the feminism front, again, I don't feel I've untangled by any means completely the various strands, but there has long been a very reality denying strand in feminism, especially American feminism. I absolutely understand it's not all American feminists by any means, but if you look at the dominant strain of American feminism, the one that gets, you know, called invited on chat shows, that gets big book contracts, that gets exported around the world, that influences what's taught in universities, all of those things, that's a sort of feminism that seems to think that if you accept we're animals and that men and women are different in predictable not very large but predictable ways that you're therefore accepting that women are inferior therefore accepting that women will always be dominated by men and second-class citizens the trouble is the hard fact is we are different so there's this strand of feminism that has really taken on an enormous 50 year at least effort at reality denial And I really think that that plays a big part in why we've got where we have all these people who call themselves feminists I mean I've I've used this example before and it was actually a man who said it to me but he wasn't lying he said when I talked about this subject first in an editorial meeting and I said you know as as just a fact I said uh, you know I mean men are stronger than women and you know it's not reasonable to allow male people into female sports we have female sports for exactly that reason and he emailed me afterwards and he said you know I was very concerned to hear you say that males are stronger than females. And I know many feminists who would disagree. And at the time I thought, you little wanker, who the hell do you think you are to tell me about feminism? You're half my age and you're an idiot. And I slowly realized that actually he was telling me the truth. He does know many people who call themselves feminists who would deny that reality. And that's the point at which I think, like, did we this to ourselves to some extent?
0: Well, I do think that some of the feminist ideas that tend to get um, popular or tend to be picked up by the media do tend to kind of confirm what men would like to hear anyway, that some of the less popular strands of feminism are less popular because they've been sort of sidelined. I think of Andrea Dworkin, for example, who unlike Judith Butler, hasn't been translated in multiple languages around the world and so on. I was speaking with a Chinese feminist and I've talked to Korean feminists and they say that, yes, Judith Butler is translated but they've never heard of Andrea Dorkin. So there's kind you of a-, remind po- me
1: of a yeah, You remind me of a very funny one, which is a gender doctor, one of the old school gender doctors who told me that he'd been asked to give some advice to a clinic in, I think, Argentina a new one that was setting up and he was a bit suspicious because, you know, things have changed so fast that he's wondering what exactly they're asking him to advise on. And in the phone call, they said, you know, with great pride that I, I can't remember now, was it that they had all read Judith Butler or they had all even got a seminar with Judith Butler or something. And he uh-huh. burst out laughing in this interview. He was roaring with laughter. He said, what the hell has Judith Butler got to do with anything? I just <laughs> thought exactly, you know. But yes, no, I, I, I really don't disagree with you. I mean, there's this... You know, we we do live in a, a world that was built by men for men, and women are constantly having to push to take any space at all, discursively especially, and so of course the voices that get amplified are the most convenient voices for men. But I am just struck by how many young women are the foot soldiers of trans activism. I mean they're far more interested in it than young men are. And, you know, it's all, at some point you have to say, okay, yes, this is socialization. Okay, this is because they study the sort of subjects where this sort of stuff is taught. But at some point you have to say, I, I'm sorry, I have to ask them to take responsibility. You know, if you are a woman in your 20s and you're saying, come and pee next to me, and, you know, it's absolutely fine that Rachel McKinnon is taking that gold medal. Rachel McKinnon is just clearly the best woman. And so on and so forth. At some point I have to say to you, for goodness sake, have some self-respect woman.
0: Oh, I agree with you completely. And I'm not trying to make any sort of excuse for that, except that I can see how socially there, yes, there is... are many
1: factors that interact and that self-reinforce for sure.
0: Well, they see what happens to women who disagree with men, even oh, the simple act, you know, of just, of just saying no. It's terrifying. By oh, the way, there's,
1: a, there's another factor that really plays into this, and that is the ageism that is at the heart of misogyny. So women go through a, a, a passage in life that men don't go through, obviously, at, at menopause. And so I think there's another, it's another occasion where there's a bedrock physical reality upon which many social and political meanings and constructs are built. So, you know, women go through this thing that under that they're fuckable and after that they're witches. That's the way it is, fuckable or witch. And young women know that this is coming for them if they admit it, that, you know, you've got a a shelf life. Um, you know, if you are very lucky and you're very fit and you maybe have some plastic surgery and so on, that shelf life is to maybe 45, maybe even 50. But after that, you're a witch. You're a service human being only. And it's not even a sexual service human being. It's a people's mother, you know, someone who, you know, who staffs charity shops for free. Um, someone who's just a, a laughingstock, really. And someone who's a, a, a target for abuse. I mean, you know, that's been true all through society. And so I don't think it's I think it's. Despicable, but psychologically understandable, that young women want to deny that this is coming down the pipe for them. And obviously, what they should be doing is forming solidarity with older women and trying to change things so that when it gets to be them, the world has changed. But not everybody is that brave or strategic or honest, and for a lot of young women, it's easier to deny that it even exists. And the way that you do that is by, um, you know, dumping everything on the older woman you say that you know, it's not that she's old is the problem it's that she actually is a witch you know and to deny that this is going to happen to you and there are many ways in which you can deny things and you know as any psychologist psychologist will tell you denial is a very powerful thing that causes many outworkings and unpredictable ways so if you're a young woman who is trying desperately to deny to yourself the truth that by the time you were 50 you too will be in this category of witch then you might decide to identify as non-binary or a boy or a trans boy or a demi boy or something like that. You may deny that women's and men's bodies are different and that it's women who get raped and women who are physically weaker and women who who get pregnant and have to carry the baby and that has consequences. Uh, You may demonize those older women because you know you're a good woman and they're bad women. There are many bad things that come from this Uh, and you know but there's things that women are doing they're doing in a world that's constructed for and by men i accept that of course but i mean women are doing these things to other women all the time
0: yeah it's like uh do it to julia right it is i was thinking of that yeah don't do it to me do it to someone else i mean it is really terrifying you know uh there's that uh again dworkin who had that great line about you know most women being afraid to uh to confront the reality of what we're up against. Um, but I do wanna kind of end this on sort of a positive note, which is that I do see a lot of younger women now coming into understanding uh, kind of second wave feminism or radical feminism, or. Uh, I think that this discussion in particular about gender ideology is bringing a lot of awareness of other issues to younger women. And I do see that starting to happen on social media. And there are cases, for example, like South Korea, the feminist movement there, which has really taken off. So I do wanna be hopeful that possibly this issue itself and how absurd it is and how, what a, what a big lie it is, might really bring some women back to an understanding of solidarity. Yeah,
1: I also am. I mean, I'm angry beyond any ability to express it about the waste of women's time and effort here. But I also am positive and energized. And... Um, so the anger is because not just this incredible, vicious assault on women's rights, women's ability to speak, women's, proper, abs- just sheer embodied reality. It's a, it's an attack on us physically, mentally, psychologically, in all sorts of ways. And I'm also very angry because we're having to waste our time on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I quote a, I quote a feminist campaigner here from Philia, a young women's group here in, uh, in the UK. And she said, you know, while we are talking about this, Female genital mutilation continues. Women are being raped. Women are having to seek shelter in domestic violence shelters, and so bloody on. And here we are having the most stupid discussion of my. I life.
0: mean, my God! Because of COVID, the, the the incredible spike in violence against women globally that's been well documented, and we're yeah we're here talking about whether or not a man can be a woman.
1: Yeah, and again, does that is that a coincidence? I think not, I think this is just, it is one of the purposes of this discussion is to distract women and to take women's effort away. And to make us sound like idiots, by the way. Like, you know, I sound i sound like I'm saying stupid things and I sound like I'm saying obscene things, but I'm not the one who's citing clownfish in service of the <laughs> idea that men can become women. And I'm not the one who's saying that it's fine to have different female genitalia, i.e. male ones in women's changing rooms and the little girls who don't like this should just look away. I'm not the one who's doing those things. I'm just the one who's pointing out that those things are happening. And yet it's I who sound obscene and crazy because of that. So that's all. that all makes me very, 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 very angry. There are really better things that we could be doing. All of that said, if you look back through the history of ideas and social movements and social change, it is under pressure that movements are forged. I am absolutely heartened by the amazing women who have, you know, I, I wasn't doing any feminist, feminist feminist activism at all of any sort. I mean, I regarded myself as a feminist and I was living as a feminist, but I wasn't thinking about the movement or anything like that. And now I know so many amazing women who have, you know, in some cases lost their jobs, in some cases not, but they have stepped forward and we are energised and there's a feeling of sisterhood and, you know, all these powerful women who would not have come forward if things had just pottered along. And you know what? There was a rot. There was a rot a long time before this came up you know this this reality denying strain in feminism and this focus ever more on the problems of the top 1% and this lack of solidarity between developed countries and developing countries and this disgusting misogyny that sees younger women slagging off older women and no cascading of wisdom through the generations all these things were there before but we weren't recognising them or seeing them as problems. We were just, you know, pottering along like before the financial crisis, thinking that, you know, it was the end of history and that the problems have been solved or we just had to wait for a few generations and we'd be there, you know, it would just happen naturally. And here we are now in, in not just a fight for our lives, but a fight for our ability to define our reality. And I've never felt more energised and I've never felt that the women around me are more energised either. So that's the blessing, that's the gift out of all of this. So what sort of fools they were, the people who thought that they could have the final victory over women by taking away even our ability to state our physical reality and what we see around us. I mean, a bunch of angry women is the last thing you want to see.
0: That's excellent. I think that's a really good stopping point. Well Great. Said. Thank you. I've really enjoyed
1: this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. You can purchase Trans When Ideology Meets Reality through any major online retailer, including Amazon. You can follow Helen Joyce on Twitter at HJoyceGender. Any questions or comments can be directed to me at Twitter at WomenReadWomen Women or via email at contact at women's voices.org.